So we are continuing in our series, uh, The Miraculous. It's, it's really a picture, kind of as we're looking for the summer, of these miracle moments of, in the life of Jesus. And it's not so much an exploration of the miracle itself and trying to prove or disprove whether or not these things actually happen. It's more of using these moments as a launching off place to say, God, what are you doing? What were you doing? And what does that mean for me? Right? And I kind of gave you the backstory each week, but we're in week five now, so I'll skip the backstory and just let you know that we're exploring these miracle moments of Jesus and asking ourselves the questions, God, what were you doing and what does that mean for me? And we're going to kind of continue on that same trajectory this morning as we look at an encounter where Jesus gives a paralyzed man the ability to walk. In full view of a household of people, he gives him the ability to walk. And we're going to look at it from a bunch of different perspectives. In fact, this is going to be a really kind of interesting message because at the end of this whole thing, I, I'm not really going to put a bow on it for you and, and kind of bring it all down to this one thing. Instead, I'm just going to kind of leave it out there and say, where do you really see yourself in this passage? All right, this is the kind of message that you get flunked out of preaching class for. But I really think it's important because there's so many different avenues that we see God at work here. And I know that if we take a glance at this message, what we'll see, or, or this series, what we'll see is we can find ourselves right in the middle of this someplace. So we're going to be in the book of Mark, chapter 2. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to get there um, as we uh, kind of dive headlong into this kind of quickly this morning um, so we can get through a lot of things in a, in a short amount of time. We're going to look at the book of Mark, chapter 2. Yeah, several of you have asked, I've got this band-aid on my arm. Some of you ask if i got a tattoo. And I said, no, I have, have a few, but uh, not this one. This is a Star Wars band-aid because that's all we have at our house, apparently. So I've got a boo-boo, and I've got a Star Wars Band-Aid on. So now that you can quit staring at it, wondering if I think that I have something, or you know I have something on my arm. So, Because um, I was walking up the aisle, and someone whispered, there's something on your arm. I was like, I know. Thank you. <laughs> you don't want me to be embarrassed. Trust me. All right, Mark chapter 2. Um, we're going to be in verses 1 all the way down through 12. Let's take a moment and uh, pray together. God, we thank you just for the, the simple moments of gathering as a church in prayer. God, for the truth that you call us to share together, Father, for the opportunity to open your word. Lord, we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you, and we ask you to speak to us this morning and help us find ourselves in the middle of this miracle moment. Take a second in your own life, just, just sit there for a moment and just ask the God of the universe to teach you something this morning, to help you find yourself buried somewhere in this story. Just ask God to show you something this morning, teach you. Take a moment, as we always do, and pray for someone around you. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Just pray that God would, would move in their life. Being part of a church family is about being concerned with other people's walk with Christ. So whisper that God would move in their heart. Even if you don't know their name or have never seen them before, just ask that God would move in them. Lord, we thank you so much in advance for what you're going to do in our hearts and through your word. We pray, God, as we open it together, you would teach us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to try and motor through a lot of things really quick this morning because we worship in prayer time. So I want to get you, get you out of here before 2. All right, so Mark chapter 2, right? Okay, so here we go. Um, starting in verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. 
So many gathered there that there was no room left outside of the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing him a paralytic carried by four of them, and since they could not get to Jesus because of the crowd, he made an opening in the roof, or they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was laying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? So that you may know the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of all of them. And this amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So here's the deal with this story. And I thought long and hard about it because there's a whole bunch of different ways I could have approached it. And, and I thought even about taking a few weeks and really looking at all these angles. Because we could look at this miracle moment through the, through the eyes of the paralyzed guy, right? That makes sense. I mean, what was it like for him, his experiences, and what is God doing? We could look at it through the eyes of these, these guys, the four guys that, or, or more that brought this paralyzed guy to Jesus. Why do that? What does that look like? What would it take? You know, what was the, the angle? What were they trying to do? You know, what were they so fervently excited about that they dug through a roof, right? We could have, we could have looked at it through the eyes of, of the Pharisees, right? So they're standing in the presence of Jesus, and, and Jesus forgives sins, and what does that mean to them, and why they're so hung up on that, and why that's such an issue for them. We could look at it through the eyes of the onlookers, the crowd. I mean, they were watching Jesus do miracles, and they were amazed. I mean, this guy stood up and walked out in full view of all of them, right? Or we could look at it through the eyes um, of Jesus himself. You know, and Jesus' interaction with this paralyzed man and what Jesus was doing and, and the words that he used. I could probably spend multiple weeks doing that. But, but really this morning what I want to do is, is I kind of want to take a quick view of all of them. Because I think that the story loses some of its depth and its power if we don't realize how much is really going on. All right. And it's a really amazing story because here's Jesus, and, and, and Capernaum was really Jesus' hometown. All right? If there was any place that Jesus called home, which he didn't really have a house, but he called home, it was a home base of sorts. All through the New Testament, we see Jesus and the disciples going out from Capernaum. They go here, they come back, they go and come back. A lot of people believe that some of the disciples had family there, and so they'd come back and they'd go. And, and it said that Jesus returned home. So the city actually felt like this was Jesus' kind of hometown, home base, if you will, for his sort of earthly ministry. And it says that Jesus returned and he was teaching and he was teaching in this house and this house was so full of people that people were crammed outside. And you've heard me say this a dozen times. Jesus traveled and people showed up. I mean, we're not just talking about 12 guys wandering around the countryside. We're talking about hundreds of people following Jesus every single place that he went. And he's teaching in this home and it's packed with Pharisees and people and disciples. And it's so full that people are looking in the windows and they're pouring out to the street. And it says that, that there were some men who brought a paralyzed guy to Jesus, a paralytic, someone that couldn't walk. We don't know much else about this guy. We don't know what caused it or how long he'd been paralyzed, most likely from birth, but we don't know that for sure. We don't know if, if he was a quadriplegic or, or what really was going on, but we know that he can't walk and he laid on a mat, which was not all that uncommon at all for a person with a handicap like that. They would, they would lay on a mat outside of town or by the city gate begging for money. That was the existence that they had, right? They have some people that took care of the poor and they would take them out there at the beginning of the day and they would bring them back 
in the evening. And that was exactly this person's existence. And so they bring this person on the mat, which is really more like a stretcher, right? They had some, some rods that probably ran through a piece of cloth. And they carried this guy from the city gate, most likely, all the way to this house. And when they get there, the house is packed, right? They want to take this guy to Jesus. And they get there, and the house is packed. So what do they do? Well, the only other option they had was to do something kind of... Uh, well, kind of dangerous, kind of amazing. They go up on the roof because in, in, in those days in Palestine, the houses were made of mud, right? They're not wood-framed construction brick houses. They're made of mud and dirt and sticks and things like that. 2,000 years ago, you know, construction obviously was very different. And so a lot of times these houses were built with flat roofs, and they would use the, the roofs at night for either sleeping or for reclining or sitting or dining because their houses were usually one or two rooms only, and a family of five or six or eight would stay there. And so the roofs were very functional. So they would climb up a ladder and uh, they began to dig through the roof, right? And we're just talking about mud and sticks and rocks and stuff. And so they dug a hole. I mean, a big enough hole in the roof to lower a man through. So here's Jesus teaching Pharisees and scribes and, and people, the teachers of the law and disciples and others gathered around. And, and, a, and a hole breaks through the ceiling. And this man begins to get lowered down, right? Laying right there at the feet of Jesus, exposed. And Jesus looks at it. And the text says Jesus saw their faith, saw their faith, and he says, uh, son, your sins are forgiven. Well, the Pharisees, of course, are all caught up in this because they're like, who can forgive sins but God alone? And so they're going, this is blasphemous. The guy's forgiving sins. That's crazy. And Jesus, and they're not really saying it. They're thinking it. And Jesus, knowing what they're thinking, says, why are you thinking these things in your heart? What's easier? What is easier? Is it easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or for me to tell him to get up and walk? And he goes, but so that you'll know that the Son of Man, which is a title that Jesus used to refer to himself, the Son of Man, right, has the authority to forgive sins. I'm going to tell this guy to walk. Get up your mat and walk. God picks up his mat in full view of everybody, and he walks out of the house, and everybody is amazed. Now, that story is full, I mean, chock full of miracle moments, all right? I mean, Jesus knows the thoughts of the Pharisees, right? I mean, he heals this guy. It's just a powerful story. But there's so many pieces at play that I think are, I think are really important for us to understand. So rather than taking one little trajectory and saying, look at these things, I want you to look at some of these things through the eyes or through the lens of all of the people involved. So you've got this paralyzed guy. He seems the most obvious. I mean, this story is really about him, isn't it? I mean, he's the one who gets healed after all. But think of the emotional kind of roller coaster this guy must have gone through. Because it's easy for us to look at him and be like, hey, there's a paralyzed guy and some people brought him and he was healed and that's awesome. But imagine for a moment that that's you. Imagine what you would be thinking. I mean, every day of your life was the same existence. Somebody in the morning would come and get you, pick you up and take you outside of town and leave you. Where you would beg for food and money. And then at the end of the day, someone who probably cared for the poor, most likely not your family because a lot of times you didn't have family. Right? If you had a handicap, people would, would abandon you because of an uncleanliness, which I'll get to in a little bit. They would leave you and they'd come back and get you. That was your existence every day. Right? That was it. There was no other options. So all of a sudden, these four guys show up. And we know it's four because they carried the map. But the text kind of lets you think that there may have been more. Because it says some men came bringing a paralyzed guy to Jesus and four of them were carrying the mat, right? So this group of guys shows up and they say, hey, we're going to go and we're going to take you to Jesus. Well, there's got to be a little bit of excitement and anticipation that begins to run through this paralyzed guy's 
body. Because, I mean, everyone's heard the stories about Jesus. And this is Jesus' kind of hometown, if you will. People knew about him. They had heard the miracle things that have happened. They have heard the things that Jesus had been doing. And so when they said, we're going to take you to Jesus, there's got to be this anticipation, excitement that sort of wells up within this guy going, maybe if all the stories are true, if I can get there, maybe I'll walk. So God begins to allow himself kind of getting to be excited, right? So these guys pick up his mat and they walk over there and sure enough when they get there, what happens? The house is full, right? Disappointment and frustration probably set in. I mean, here we came all the way across town. They carried me all the way over from the city gate and I can't even get in to see Jesus. Which is probably just another in a long, long, long line of frustrations, right? I get myself or I let myself get excited about something and then all of a sudden it just doesn't work out. I can't get in there. Plus, not only that, it's packed with Pharisees. I'm not even allowed in there because of the connection between handicap and uncleanliness and sin. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a minute. So here he is, not able to even get in to go see Jesus. But these guys have a plan. And they say, okay, well, well let's try this. Let's take you up top of the roof, and we're going to pull the roof pieces away, and we're going to lower you down. Now, it sounds like a brilliant plan on paper, but if you're the paralyzed guy, that's the, probably the last thing in the world that you want. I mean, the fear alone of being lowered in your uncleanliness right in the middle of a room full of Pharisees who take religious rules and cleanliness very seriously. Because being a, a cripple or a handicapped person that can't walk, they associated your condition with the sin of your family or of your own sin which made you unclean and people wouldn't even look at you. Yet here I was going to be lowered down in the middle of a room full of people who took their cleanliness very seriously, right at the feet of Jesus. And what if Jesus said, no, what do I do then? I can't get up and leave. It's like I can get up and walk. I am stuck laying in front of all of these eyes. See, for the, the men, it's a good plan. We'll lower him down. Jesus will heal him. We, I believe that. But for the guy being lowered down, this is a, a fearful moment. And then you have Jesus look at him, see their, see their faith, and say your sins are forgiven. Kind of a letdown. I mean, here you go. I finally got to Jesus. And, and I, yeah, I want my sins forgiven. That's great. But I really wanted to walk. Right? I mean, the guy didn't come to Jesus so he could get his sins forgiven. He came to Jesus so that he could begin to walk. And when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, I'm sure that guy was like, awesome. That's, thank you. I mean, I'm grateful. But, and then after this little encounter with the Pharisees, right, Jesus tells him to get up his mat and walk and in that moment, that guy has a choice. He can, he can try, knowing full well that he may fail. I mean, most likely he's never walked before or it's been years. Will my legs even work? What if I make a fool of myself? What if I can't? It's much easier just to lay here. But Jesus tells him to do it, and so what does he do? He, he does it. And then it says that in the full view of him, he walked out of the house and into the street. Luke kind of paints the picture that he just sort of poured out into the light. I like to think of that moment, what that must have been like. I mean, can you imagine having, having been, have, not having the ability to even walk, and then all of a sudden being given that gift to walk, and what that must have felt like, and the, the, the elation. The dan I like to think that moment was full of dancing and running and screaming. What that must have been like. And in just a few short moments, this guy goes through these roller coaster of emotions. And I was thinking about my life and, and kind of, how I probably have some ties to this paralyzed guy, right? But I think as Christians, 
we've been taught so often that our feelings, right, the things that we're, we're feeling or our emotions, um, that there are certain ones that are right and there are certain ones that are wrong. And being anxious or fearful or afraid or disillusioned or angry or frustrated, that those things are wrong as followers of Christ. And so we hide from them, we pretend they don't exist. But if we're really honest, most of us have come face to face with those things. We've wanted something from God, and God has given us something else. But what I really wanted was this job, or what I really wanted was this person, this boyfriend, this girlfriend, this relationship, or this thing, or whatever. And that didn't happen. And I'm angry, and I'm hurt, and I'm frustrated, because God, I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed. Right? Maybe a lot like that paralyzed guy in a moment you felt sort of that deep sadness of saying, I can't get in. It's not going to work out. Or just when I thought it was, God kind of did something different. I think a lot of us have emotions that run through our relationship with Christ that we don't like to deal with because we've been told all of our lives that to have fear or anxiety or even doubt is sinful. The truth is those things aren't sinful. When they run our lives, when they take the place of where God is, they become sinful. But the emotion itself is not. The reality is there are people in Scripture that have had much bigger doubts than you ever will have. There are people in Scripture that had much bigger questions than you ever will have. So embrace them and lay them at the feet of Jesus. Because when this guy's laid at the feet of Jesus with no place else to go, no place else to run, no place else to hide, totally, totally exposed is when God meets his deepest need, right, his sinfulness. And then God gives him this ultimate ability to walk, which is, is really amazing. So you've got this paralyzed guy who's having his own experience with Jesus, right? And then you've got these, these men, these four guys, probably more. It says some men came and, and brought this paralyzed guy to Jesus, four of them carrying the mat. Now I find these guys really fascinating because I've heard multiple sermons and I've read multiple stories and, and uh, multiple authors that have written on the story talking about these guys being friends of the paralyzed guy. So friends of the paralyzed guy. In fact, I heard an entire sermon one time preached on the meaning of friendship based on this text. That to be a true friend, right, someone that loves a friend so dearly that you will go to them and you will carry them when they can't walk to Jesus. And it was a great little picture about friendship and how much you're called to love people and sacrifice and carry them to the roof and dig holes for them and this whole little deal, right? And it's really pretty, and I appreciate it. But I'm not sure that it's, that it's really there, okay? And, here's, here, and this is important because nowhere in any of those texts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, which all record the same story, are these guys ever referred to as friends. They're only, only referred to as some men. Some men. Now, Maybe they were friends. Maybe they were best friends. Maybe they barbecued each other's houses. I don't know. But we don't know for sure. I'm not convinced by the text itself that these guys were friends. But here's what I am convinced of. Maybe they were. But here's what I am convinced of. These guys, beyond a shadow of a doubt, believed that Jesus could heal the broken. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, whoever these men are, they believed deeply that Jesus was the answer. All right? That's what they believed. And so they went and got a guy across town at the gate, paralyzed, and brought him all the way to Jesus. And when they got there and the place was full, what did they do? They hoisted this guy up on the roof and they tore apart someone's house. Why? Because they believed deeply that Jesus could heal. Maybe they'd seen it before. We don't know anything about him. We just know that these are some guys that were driven by their belief that Jesus was the answer. And that Jesus could heal the broken. Now, 
Why is that important? Well, it's important because it's challenged me to think about how, how deeply do I really believe Jesus can heal? I mean, am I passionate about the fact that, that Jesus is the answer for brokenness? And what extent will I go to to show Jesus to somebody? See, because if it's just about friendship, that's fine, which tells me that I only have to be that passionate about my friends. But nowhere in this text do we see the word friendship at all, even in the Greek. What we see is that these people believe that Jesus was the answer, and they went and got a guy who was broken, and they brought him to Jesus. And as I begin to read this, I begin to be convicted. Number one, am I that passionate about Christ? Do I believe that deeply that he heals the broken, including myself? And two, what extent will I go to to show Christ to somebody else? These guys went across town, carried a man to a house, tore their house apart, whosever house it was, and dropped him at the feet of Jesus. And what happens? When Jesus sees their faith, whose faith? Theirs, not just the paralyzed guy. But he sees the faith of these guys poking their heads to the roof. He says what? When he sees their faith, probably the paralyzed guy included, maybe not, but we know he says there, he says your sins are forgiven. See, the, their faith was demonstrated by how the extent that they went to to show Christ to somebody. The reality for you and for me is this. We very seldom, very seldom will even go beyond what, what is convenient to us to show Jesus to somebody. How many times have, have you let a moment pass you by where you knew you could have expressed the love to Christ, but it had just sort of been a little too long, right? Like you'd already driven a little too far, or you've already kind of let them walk out of the room, or you've already kind of done whatever, and oh, just a circle around would be too much work. Happens to me all the time. These guys go out of their way because they believe Jesus, I passionately believe Jesus was the healer, and they went out of their way to do it even to the extent of tearing somebody's home, they were not going to give up because they believed that they could just get this person to Jesus, right? I think as a church, we are built around convenience. I will tell you about Christ as long as it is convenient for me. And of course, this isn't for all of us. Oh, convenient for me. Most of us won't get across and go to the next cubicle, right? Much less drag somebody across town. How many of you not answer the phone intentionally knowing that the person at their end, it was going to be a long drawn out conversation how many of you intentionally done something that you knew was going to take a little bit more effort because you just didn't have it in you even though you knew that the one thing they needed was the love of Christ so you've got these guys we can look at the story through their perspective then you got the Pharisees right I mean the Pharisees are fascinating to me because they're always so close to seeing the Messiah but so just far enough to not see him at all so here's Jesus, and he looks at this guy, guy, and he says, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees, of course, in their minds, freak out because they were so con- kind of bent on knowing the rules. And they were right. Only God could forgive sins. That is the truth of the law. But they were so, con- so concerned with knowing that rule and the law that they were missing the fulfillment of the law standing right in their presence. So convinced with the rules, right, that they were missing the move of God in their very presence and so they were like, this is blasphemous, right? So they had this amazing little encounter with Jesus, which I'll kind of tell you a little bit more about in just a second. But they were so content or so hung up on the rules, they missed the move of God. I remember when I was doing youth ministry back in Austin, I, uh, I brought this kid. Um, I had met him at an event that we did. He was not a church kid. He had, his mother had committed suicide, and he was in a 
horrific place. Kid had never been to church. Dad didn't go to church. The guy was sad and broken and hurt and angry, right, as you or I probably very much would be. And I convinced him one day after this thing we had on a Friday night, this event that we had to come to church on Sunday. And he was like, I, I'm not coming to church. He was a high school kid. I'm not coming to church. Never been to church. Don't know what it's like. Don't want to go. I said, Man, just give us a try. Please, just give us a try. Because I, I believe that there's answers in Scripture that God wants us to teach you. And they, I want these people, I wanted our church to love this kid. So I was like, please come, because I believe if they, they know you, they would love you. And the kid looked really different, huge gauges in his ears, and, you know, he just was a different kid. And I remember him saying, if I come, I'm not going to be embarrassed, right? You're not going to make me stand up or do anything. I said, no, no, of course not. So he shows up at church on Sunday, that very next Sunday, and he's in kind of like long black cargo shorts, black shirt, some chains, and he's got this baseball hat on, right? And he's nervous, man, never been in church before, nervous, doesn't really fit the bill of what our kind of church kind of people dress like, looked really different. Take him into the 11 o'clock kind of big traditionalist service, and, and uh, we're walking down the aisle, and this guy gets up from his, his seat, taps him on the shoulder, and I'm standing right there with him. And he goes, hey, kid, take your hat off. Don't you know you're in a church? And I remember that kid's face just fell. And he just turned and he just ran out the back door. So I go out there with him and I'm trying to talk to him. And he's like, I'm so embarrassed. I had no idea he was upset. I was like, come back. He would not come back in. Could never get that kid to come back to church. Ever. I ask and 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 he never came back. Now, I know that gentleman, I know him well, and I know that he meant well. He was about reverence, and kids these days wearing hats in church. And he wanted people to have a reverence for God. But in the middle of trying to attach ourselves to rules, I missed the fact that there was a broken person that needed Jesus. I heard a guy say one time that as Christians, we're so concerned with holding people accountable. And Jesus, he was concerned with just holding people because it worked better. And I thought how powerful that is, right? We're, sometimes we get so hung up in the rules. Who's doing this and what you're wearing and why they're even here that we miss Jesus in the middle of it. Pharisees were right there. And then finally, we have this picture of Jesus, right? We can see the story through the eyes of Jesus. And here's Jesus, this guy being lowered at his feet. And notice what he says to him. He says, son Right, son, your sins are forgiven. Does that sound familiar? It should, because week one, when we were looking at this series, a very similar encounter happens. You remember Jesus is walking with Jairus because Jairus' daughter was dying. And it says that a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years pressed through the crowd, right? And she's thinking, if I can just touch his cloak, and she touches it, and text says that immediately power goes out from Jesus, right? And she was healed. She was instantly healed, stopped bleeding, and Jesus stops, and he looks, and he says, who touched me? And it says that she came and fell at his feet, trembling in fear, and she told the whole truth. And what does Jesus say to her? This broken, sinful, unclean woman, right? He looks at her and he says, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Now don't miss the power in these words, son and daughter. These are people that have probably most likely never been called that because they were terms of love, right? They were terms of care. 
And what happens is that Jesus looks at this paralyzed guy who no one has really loved that much because his, his condition was associated with his sinfulness and people wouldn't have anything to do with him. And he looks at him and he calls him son, which we miss that in our kind of non-family driven culture that we live in. But in those days, 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, even in the Middle East now, family means more than it means here. To look at that guy, broken, laying before you, and say, son, was so powerful. And what it must have spoken to that man, the same way that it spoke to that young woman, daughter, right? Basically saying, I love you. I love you. He says, your sins are forgiven because Jesus knew his deeper need, right? Jesus knows that our deepest need is our sinful nature needs to be redeemed. And so he looks at this guy and he says, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because his condition from a cultural standpoint, was associated with his sinfulness. What he was saying in front of everybody is that I will call you child and your sins, which these people believe are contributing to your condition, are forgiven, meaning you are no longer broken. That's what Jesus is telling this guy. You are no longer broken. Of course, the Pharisees flip out and Jesus has a great interaction with them where he's like, why are you thinking these things? What's easier, for me to tell him his sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Well, of course, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because no one can prove that. Hey, guess what? Your sins are forgiven. Really? Awesome. How do, you, how do you know that? You don't. So Jesus says, it's easier for me to say that, right? But just so you know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, I'm going to show you something. He says, get up and walk. Because both are things that only God can do. Only God can forgive sins, and only God can give the lame the ability to walk. So he says, so you'll know, get up and walk. What Jesus was doing in front of everybody was declaring his divinity. By saying, I have the ability to forgive sins and I will make this guy walk, you will see, right, because you're right, that only God can forgive sins, that I am the picture of God, that God has given me that authority. And Jesus was declaring his divinity. So if you look at this picture, right, this whole thing, and here's where this whole thing just sort of ends in a sort of tumbling, broken mess. You can really find yourself wrapped up in here in a number of places. Right? Maybe some of you are stuck here today feeling a lot like the paralyzed guy. Anxious, emotional, fearful, afraid, disillusioned, name it. Whatever it is, name it. Maybe you feel like they, that you're laying on this mat and God has told you to just get up, walk. I'm going to give you the power, yet you're stuck there, laying there because you're petrified. Or maybe you're, con- you're just kind of convinced that God is never going to let you have what you really desire. And you're living in disillusionment and frustration. Name your emotion Name your fear and lay it at the feet of Jesus. Maybe some of us in here are wrapped up like these, kind of thinking about these, uh, fri- these friends, these guys, asking ourselves, how passionate am I really about Jesus? Why won't I go out of my way to share the people I work with about the love of Christ? Most of us are so convinced with being right that we're letting that thing destroy our marriage. We're so convinced and so kind of bent on being correct that we won't even love our own spouse with the love of Jesus. We're so content or so kind of bent on that that we hold a grudge, we won't even call our own dad and say, I'm sorry. These guys went out of their way to show Jesus, or really to bring this person to Jesus. We won't even go out of our way to show Jesus to anybody because it's about what's convenient for me. Do you really believe that God can heal? Maybe it's time to get up and walk across the room, right? Maybe some of us are living as Pharisees. We've grown up in church cultures or systems all of our life, right? All of our life that are about rules and about what's right or wrong. 
Maybe we just need to let go and love somebody. Quit worrying about what they're doing, what they look like, and start loving them with the love of Christ. Or maybe somebody's here this morning that just needs to hear this. Jesus calls you son, and he calls you daughter. In a world that is telling you you are unlovable, maybe you come up with systems of parents that have said you're unlovable. But Jesus says, I love you deeply. I don't know where you are, but I promise you, if you open your heart, you'll find yourself whispered to in the middle of that story. As we close our time in worship this morning, we kind of leave this message at a, just a broken kind of, here it is. I encourage you to say, God, where am I in the middle of all this? Because we like sermons that sort of leave us in this place where I say, great, I've got these three things and I'll put them in my pocket and I'll go, maybe I'll remember them this week, maybe I won't. But I'm leaving this thing in a place where you say, you've got to ask God, God, where am I in the middle of that? Where do I see you? What are you speaking to me? And what do I need to hear? And as we close our time in worship this morning, my challenge is, you, is this, is where is God showing you that you are in the middle of all that this morning? And what does that mean for you? Let's pray.